0: Okay, so we're continuing our study of Christology, which is the study of Christ, Christ. and uh, last week we were wrapping up a conversation about the resurrection and ascension of Christ, not just the historical facts that they happened, but what that means about our beliefs about Jesus. And so today, um, this is the last lesson. I suspect it will take at least two weeks. It might take three weeks. We might need a week for each of the offices. We're going to be examining what it means that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And so if you got your uh, sheet there, follow along. We're going to begin by talking about these offices from the Old Testament. There were three offices given to the leaders of God's people in the Old Testament. You guessed it, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, of course, fulfills all of these. But I want us to consider before we get into all of that, where can we go to read about New Testament offices? So in the Old Testament in Israel, God gave His nation Israel prophets, priests, and kings. Now, the church doesn't have prophets, priests, and kings, do we? Uh, If anybody stands up and says, I'm a prophet, or I'm a priest, or I'm a king of the church, well, we would take issue with that, rightly so. Um, This seems strange. What is happening? (laughs) Uh, I'm getting attacked by technology today. I don't know what's going on here. We're we're actually going to
1: handle this issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm usually unplugging (laughs) (laughs) it. Let's see, let's go
0: to home here. The exit sound chair. Yes. Is Tyler doing something? I'm sure. Tyler's Tyler's doing something else. Right oh, really? Okay, oh. yeah. all right. All right. <laughs> um, well, okay, so going back to where we were. Uh, thinking about the offices of the church. We do not have prophets, priests, and kings in the church. What do we have in the church, and where do you go in the New Testament to show that? Put on your Thanking cap this morning. One of the Timothys,
2: is it in one of the Timothys or am I making things up? Okay,
0: what What do you find in one of the Timothys? I
2: don't know, Why I <laughs> what, would have said anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of offices do you find there? I'll let you know when I find it. Deacons, deacons deacons
1: elders. And elder. elders and deacons, right? Uh, you got elders and deacons
0: in 1 Timothy 3. He talks about both of those offices. In Titus 1, it just talks about elders. Well, Let's go to Ephesians 4 together. I want you to see this from the first scripture. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a good summary passage for those offices. Starting in verse 11. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 4, 6 through 10. Now this week, let's pick it up in verse 11, and someone read 11 to 13 for us. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13.
2: And he gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood.
0: Okay, so um, you see it starts off this list in verse 11 with apostles and prophets. What is going on with this? I don't understand how this is happening. T-X-11-S. Okay, give me 60 seconds. We're going to try to figure this out. I don't know what could be triggering this television. Okay, so focusing on Ephesians 4. Let's not let the teacher get distracted anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. Some as apostles and prophets. Those are the first offices that are listed. Do those offices exist anymore in the church? Apostles and prophets. No. They no, they do not. Except in Salt Lake. Yeah. <laughs> no, I said the church. Oh, um, that f- 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 is
1: the church. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the church.
0: The church registered trademark. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple chapters before this, it says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Is there a reason to lay a foundation again? No, the foundation has been laid. So apostles and prophets, that's the foundation of the church. And then you have these other offices listed. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers uh, are listed there. And then, of course, we find out in other areas of the New Testament, deacons also are an office in the church. So if you're considering what offices we have in our fellowship together, it's not prophets, priests, and kings, but we have pastors, teachers, also elders, and deacons and evangelists, okay? Those are offices given to the church, Ephesians 4, 11 to 14 there, okay? Each of these three offices, they came to the Old Testament, each of the offices of the prophet, priest, and king were initiated by anointing, and, of course, the Messiah is the anointed one. There are examples in the Old Testament of a prophet being anointed, a priest being anointed, and a king being anointed. And the Hebrews were waiting for Meshiach, Messiah, to come. And in Hebrew, that word means anointed one. And we have documentation of this threefold work of Christ being described as early as the third century, meaning the early church, those living in the 200s A.D., were understanding that Christ fulfilled these offices. We have uh, writings from those very first Christians understanding the threefold ministry of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, okay? What do the Old Testament offices have to do with the Messiah? Well, they are what are called types. Who knows how to define, just on a surface level, not a deep theological level, but on a surface level, can you give me a definition of what a type is in the Old Testament? A type. Copies. Okay, copies. Getting close. Illustration. Say that again. Illustration. Illustration, that's also close. Kind of a shadow thereof. Okay, shadow, good. Yeah, that's the word Hebrews uses, shadows. These things are the shadows of things to come, okay? Yeah, these are all very close. Um, If you think of Romans chapter 5, remember at the end of Romans 5, it talks about through one man, death entered the world, and then through another man, righteousness entered? How it puts Adam and Jesus kind of in juxtaposition there? Well, Adam is an anti-type. Of Christ, He's a type, but in the reverse sense, okay? Meaning, he brought death, Jesus brings life. He brought judgment and condemnation, Jesus brings acceptance, justification, freedom. And, and it's an anti-type and type relationship. But then you think of um, the one we'll look at here in a moment. Moses, the man Moses, he served as a prophet in Israel, and he led God's people. That was actually a type of Christ. Now, obviously... That's not the only purpose that Moses had for leading Israel. He had a very specific purpose in his time for leading those people. But in the grand scheme of history, when you zoom out and look at what God's doing in the big picture of the world, he wasn't just giving Israel a leader for a time. He was actually foreshadowing the coming of the one who would lead all nations in the church, Jesus Christ. So that's what a type is, a shadow, an illustration, something that is a uh, preview of what is to come essentially what was the role of a prophet we're going to examine these one by one now what was the role of a prophet in israel throughout the old testament what did a prophet do
3: proclaim the word of god
0: (laughs) 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 proclaim the (laughs) word of god good and uh, that was sometimes the word of god that already existed and it was sometimes the Word of God that was new, right? So when you get all the way to, say, uh, Nehemiah's day, that's toward the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, those books that you read, there's a lot of quoting of the law by those guys. It's, you know, Ezra, Ezra made it his aim to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. That law had existed at that point for 1,500 years or 1,000 years, something like that. The law had existed for a long time. Um, but when the law was first given, that was all brand new. Those first five books of the Bible, when Moses gave those, that was new revelation. And so prophets kind of had a, a twofold approach with this. One was stating what was already given, and the other was bringing about new revelation. How did Jesus then emulate these characteristics during his ministry? So if we're going to say that's what a prophet is in the Old Testament, we need to think about how Jesus fulfilled that office in his ministry there's all kinds of examples you can think of what are some examples of how
1: he was a prophet brought in the new dispensation
0: okay so the new covenant right Um, he was talking about dying and resurrecting that's new revelation he was certainly a prophet and talking about what was going to happen in the days ahead he said in Matthew 16 I will build what I will build my church. My church. My church. And there hadn't been a church to that point. So here he is giving a prophecy about what was going to happen among God's people. What about stating what was already written? Did Jesus ever quote the Old Testament? Mm, all the time. Yeah, he did.
1: Especially Psalms and such. So. Yes, De- Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and, and Psalms? Isaiah. Yes,
0: Isaiah. So you think of the Sermon on the Mount? What were some phrases from the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, that Jesus used in reference to the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5, when he's talking about divorce, and he's talking about hate, and he's talking about lust. You have heard it was said, right? Remember Jesus saying that over and over again? You've heard it said this, and he quotes the law. And then he gives new revelation. And so he would quote uh, what was already given, and then he would give something new. And Jesus had four main prophetic sermons. When you think about the ministry of Jesus, when did he... Prophesy, you could say. Well, there were four main events. these aren't the only, these are the main ones. The Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew five through seven. Okay. The Kingdom parables. You know where that is in the Gospels. He gave a bunch of parables in a row about the Kingdom of God. It's also in the Book of Matthew, chapter thirteen. Thirteen, Matthew thirteen, all of that discourse. This is when Jesus talked about the end times. Do you remember where that is? It's also Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five. Yes, good. Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five is the all that discourse, and then the upper room discourse, which is in the book of John. This is where he talks about loving one another. He talks about the coming Holy Spirit. Do you remember what chapters those are? It's all one scene, multiple chapters. He's with his disciples. Fifteen through. 13, 13 Through 16. You were it includes was, Yeah. John 13 through 16. The book of John, chapters 13 through 16. That's the upper room discourse, okay? Those are the four main prophetic sermons where he had an extended period of time speaking of what was going to happen in the future and extrapolating the word of God. Okay, thoughts or questions on that so far? Hopefully you're starting to grasp Jesus' prophetic ministry. Jesus was sent by the Father to speak only that which the Father taught him and commanded him. So let's look at these together in the book of John. John chapter 8 is where we'll go. John chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 28. And as you're turning there, I'll take this time to mention, Tyler pointed out to me, rightly so, I misspoke last week. I said uh, the resurrection was the only miracle that was found in all four Gospels, and that's wrong. In fact, it's one of the one of my favorite Bible trivia questions is to ask somebody what other miracle besides the resurrection is in all four Gospels. Do you know the answer to that question? The only other one besides the resurrection? No, blind man. Nope. that's only in one. John 9, or nine. There's only one other. Yep, that's featured in all four. Do we get get (laughs) in? No. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. (laughs) that's in those those four Gospels. (laughs) (laughs) The feeding out of five thousand. (laughs) That's the only miracle besides the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interesting interesting thing. All right, John chapter 8. Thinking of how Jesus is a prophet, he fulfilled the office of prophet. Someone want to read John 8, 28?
1: Gotta <clears throat> So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me.
0: All right. Jesus said in His earthly ministry, He did nothing on His own initiative. He did only what the Father told him to do, taught him to do, commanded him to do. Another place to see this is the very end of John 12. John 12 is a longer chapter, but John 12, 48 to 50. Let's look at that. The last three verses of John chapter 12, let's read that for us. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has
2: one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me.
0: Alright. Just like the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus, during his ministry on earth, spoke only what the Father had told him. He was a prophet in his ministry on the earth. He wasn't just a nice guy who had good teachings. He was an actual prophet, meaning his words were the very words of God. A central text in our understanding of this office is Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. We're all turned there together. My uh, my dearly loved Old Testament book, Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. When we consider what Jesus has done, how he has fulfilled, meaning it never needs to be fulfilled again, the office of prophet perfectly, let's look at this text where uh, Moses says some amazing things about the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, and I'll, I'll read that for us. It says the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord, your God and Horeb on the day of assembly saying, let me not hear again. The voice of the Lord, my God, let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So that day that is spoken of in verse 16, the when they asked of Yahweh, in Horeb on the day of the assembly. If you can remember from the sermon series in Deuteronomy, that's when the people of Israel were all gathered together, and there was smoke on the mountain, and they heard the voice, and they were fearful, and they were afraid. And they said, "Uh, I don't really want to go through that again. Uh, That's a a once-in-a-lifetime event, and I'll keep it once-in-a-lifetime. That would be nice. And the Lord says, very well. Um, He's going to raise up a prophet from among their countrymen. And look at those two words, like you, like you. And we just celebrated Christmas where Jesus became like us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was an Israelite, he was one of their countrymen. And notice the focus here in this verse is the prophetic ministry of that one who would be raised up. It says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Messiah was coming to his own, he was coming to Israel, and he was going to speak the very words of God to them as a prophet. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that? Well,
3: um, the woman at the wall in John 4 recognized
0: him as a prophet. He said something that he couldn't have done. Yes. So. And they were there was in that interaction there was an expectation of the coming one. That's right. Yeah, she said, "I know Messiah is coming." And she wasn't even Jewish. Yes, yeah. Samaritan. Right. So they knew that there was a coming Christ. Yes. But she she recognized immediately when he said, "Well, you're a prophet, mm-hmm. right?" <laughs> yep. Exactly. Verses for us to flip to. Let's go to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7 and then John 6. Maybe we could have one person uh, volunteer for each right now and read those. Matthew 7, 24 to 29, water. And then John 6, 11 to 14. Who can read that one for us? John 6, 11 to 14. Got it. Okay, thank you, Lord. So, again, considering that specific aspect of Jesus' ministry, a prophet, Let's look at Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Walker, go ahead and read that for us nice and loud. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine
2: and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rocks. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching
0: them as as one
2: having authority and not as their scribes.
0: All right, what was the uh, the role of a scribe in Israel at that time? Do you remember to take down the. People told them to write down the priests, they thought something write that down. Okay. Yeah, they were writers. You could say copywriters or something like that. They were those who made copies of the law, who taught who wrote down teachings, Um, they were writers of other people's thoughts and ideas. Yeah, recorders, good. And it says here, it's putting Jesus in contrast with a mere recorder, he was teaching them as one having authority. Not as one of their scribes. A recorder doesn't have much authority, right? (laughs) A recorder is put in a room to take notes. You think of the clerk in our in our church. That clerk isn't the one coming up with the content of the meeting. The clerk is the one recording the meeting. And so, when you think of what Jesus was doing here, he was teaching them, "You need to hear my words and follow them, obey them, employ them in your lives. And if you don't, you're a fool." Okay, this is strong language. I mean, if I, if I were to say that to you, hopefully you would have strong words for me. Um, hopefully you would call me a fool for saying such a thing. But when it's Jesus, obviously he's the Lord of the universe, and so he has authority to say that. But also as the role of prophet. If you just, just narrow it down to that one aspect of who Jesus was on earth, a prophet who had been given words from the Father to speak, he was able to say that. Um, he was able to say, look, if you hear these words and you act on them, you're wise. If you hear these words and don't act on them, you're foolish. He had been given authority as a prophet um, and was able to speak that way. That makes sense? Okay. And John 6, 11 to 14, look.
1: 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill he told his disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten when the okay
0: so up to that point it's an amazing thing right that just happened and if you were there, you'd be thinking, wow, this is interesting. And you might come up with different ways to describe the one who just performed the miracle. But listen to what they said about what just happened. Okay, right, go ahead a little
1: When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world.
0: They associated that sign with him being the capital P prophet, the one who Moses was talking about. They associated that sign with the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. This is truly, indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Amazing.
1: My Bible it. says who is to come.
0: Or who is to come <laughs> in the world, yes. <laughs> we could read it wrong. And at the end of um, the chapter when people were all leaving, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, people got their bellies full and they left. Uh, the crowds were all dispersing. But do you remember who remained? It's a pretty easy answer. The disciples. The disciples, okay, good. And Jesus said, why didn't you guys leave? And then Peter responded, you remember what he said?
1: You have eternal life, where else do we go?
0: He said, where, where else would where you go? go? For you have the words of eternal life. Again, recognizing he's a prophet. He has the words of eternal life. Jesus entered the scene in Israel as the authoritative, capital B prophet, who was able to speak the very words of God. They had not seen this kind of leading prophet since the days of Moses. All right? Jesus came along as one who had authority. As one who was able to impart the words of life, the words of God. That's not to say there were no prophets from Moses to Jesus, but we think of Moses's powerful ministry, the signs that were worked through Moses, the way that God delivered people through Moses as a prophet. Um, Jesus, of course, came along like Moses. Deuteronomy eighteen says, and was a, um, a fulfillment of that office. Okay. Good. The people considered him to be a prophet. We just saw it in uh, John 6, but uh, in these two passages also. You can write these down. I don't have one of those sheets with me. I should look at what you're looking at. Yeah, okay. So underneath where it says the people there. Um, Matthew 21. And you can add that John 6, passage we just read, John 6, 11 to 14, that goes there too. But uh, Matthew 21, verse 11 and verse 46, and Luke 7, 14 to 17. Can I get someone to take Luke 7? I'll take Matthew. Who could take Luke 7 for us? Rex, go ahead. And I'll grab uh, Matthew 21, 21, 11. Matthew 21, 11 says, The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's pretty clear. This is the prophet Jesus. And verse 46 of Matthew 21 says, When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So the chief priests and the Pharisees were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they held back at the end of Matthew 21 because the people considered him to be
1: a prophet. There was an understanding among the people that that was the case. And then Luke 7, 14 to 17. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with uh, awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help us, His people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Isn't that amazing? This is Jesus healing the centurion's
0: son, and he he heals this child. He touches the coffin; they considered the child dead. The child came to life when Jesus said, "Young man, I say to you, arise." Now we probably wouldn't say the first thing they would say was a prophet but that's the first thing they thought of he's a prophet and uh, that was their understanding as israelites of what the coming prophet would do he would bear signs and wonders to attest to his prophetic ministry pretty amazing but it wasn't just the people recognizing that jesus was a prophet jesus himself declared himself to be a prophet in Mark 6, 1 to 6, and Luke 13. Rex, you want to take Luke 13, since you're already there in the book of Luke? Ooh, 31 to 33, and then when someone grab Mark 6. Andy, Mark 6, 1 to 6. All right. Luke so, 13, 31? No, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll let uh, Andy go first there, if he's ready. Um, again, this is Jesus declaring that he himself is a prophet. Um, well, people will sometimes claim, well, Jesus never claimed to be anything more than just a, a teacher. Or he never claimed to be anything more than just a man. Well, we've already looked at in this study, this was several weeks ago, we looked at where Jesus declared himself to be God. He did that multiple times. And then we see here he declares himself to be a prophet. Go ahead, Any. Mark 6, 1 to 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples
3: followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives. And in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was
0: going around the villages teaching. Okay. So he was one who performed miracles, he was one who taught with authority. And that's because, verse four, he calls himself a prophet. He was a prophet in his ministry. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. Okay, and then
1: uh, Luke 13, 31 to 33. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, (laughs) I I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today, and tomorrow, and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. All right.
0: So an interesting passage for a variety of reasons, but for our purposes here this morning, he calls himself a prophet again. There in verse 33, he makes reference to himself and to his ministry as a prophet, prophetic ministry. Some people also think that Jesus was a real soft hippie. He had strong words, didn't he? No, Go no. tell that fox. Okay. Wayne Grudem says, Christ is, of course, truly and fully a prophet. In fact, he is the one whom all the Old Testament prophets prefigured. That's that word type we looked at that earlier. They prefigured in their speech and in their action. Okay. He fulfilled that office of prophet. Any other thoughts or questions on Jesus being a prophet before he moved on to priests?
2: Why could. I <laughs> <laughs> but you're a lady, so you go first. Uh, Why could, could he not do miracles in that town, or did he just choose not to?
0: Yeah, he ch- chose not to. So, the way it's phrased, some people have interpreted it as he was unable to. And um, I touched on that passage, um, the Mark 6 passage. Recently, within the last two months from the pulpit. I can't remember what the (coughs) context was of that. Um, But I did a study on that recently, and it doesn't make any sense that he would be incapable of performing a miracle. It was self-limiting where he he didn't perform any miracles there.
2: Um, How does his role as prophet relate to him being the Messiah? I know there was confusion when he came. Is he the prophet? Is he the
0: Messiah? So Um, we, um, at the beginning of this class, When you were gone, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) just one small point on that is we mentioned how in each of these offices—prophet, priest, and king—in the old covenant they were all initiated by anointing, and the word Messiah means anointed one. And so the aspect of anointment ties into each one of those. So that's a—it's a brief answer, not a full answer, but yeah.
2: Okay.
0: All right. Priest, I suspect we'll stop halfway through uh, the teaching on this office today. There are two main aspects to the priesthood fulfillment of Christ, propitiation and intercession. And you know that first word, right, propitiation? I still have uh, from last week, the word's still kind of there. What are the three aspects to propitiation that we talked about? Immediate testing. Propitiation can be defined by three different things. Can we name even one
1: of them? <laughs> I'm going to start giving you guys tests. What was the question again? Propitiation. No, I'm I'm not a multitasker. T- propitiation okay. can be defined.
0: We, we gave three aspects to what propitiation is. Can we name, just start naming one of them?
1: Was it tongue
0: no, because propitiation and atonement are synonyms, so yeah. they kind of mean the same thing.
1: It's like satis- satisfying uh, whatever words. <laughs> 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 so,
0: but the word I, I used up there was appeasement, but that didn't say the same thing. Point. Satisfying it's appeasement of what? God's, God's wrath. God's wrath. Okay, yeah. good, good, One is appeasement of wrath, of satisfaction of God's wrath. What's another, another aspect?
2: i trying to my notes. Okay, It was sufficient, like I the degree, right? Is that different from?
0: Everything? That would be wrapped up the word satisfaction or appeasement. Okay. What was the goat in genesis 22 when abraham went to go sacrifice He was a sacrifice but what kind of sacrifice and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> substitution that's the word okay i was going to say instead of isaac the goat was uh, instead <laughs> of I means substitution right substitution. um substitution aspect and then the third is the removal of guilt removal of guilt. So, you've got the satisfaction of God's wrath, and what, why does He have wrath? Because of our
1: sin. sin. And our sin was put on? <laughs>
0: well, Jesus. On the cross. <laughs> it was put on Jesus, yes. <laughs> the Lamb of God. Because He's a substitution. It was put on Him as no a substitution. And because of His uh, propitiation, because of His death, His sacrifice in our place, personally, our guilt is taken away. Okay. Man, I'm going to rewrite it, and we're going to leave it up there uh, until we get that drilled down. It's a New Testament word that you need to know. Appeasement of wrath. Substitution. And removal of guilt. That's what propitiation is, okay? And this is key to understanding Christ's work as priest. Because Old Testament priests were to initiate and to facilitate the atonement for the people of Israel. But Jesus died once for all as the perfect priest. Propitiation, of course, is the removal of man's sin and appeasement of God's wrath. Jesus accomplished this by sacrificing himself, a priest who sacrificed himself. Okay? Jesus interceded for us as sinners when he presented his life to the Father as an appropriate sacrifice. Um, He interceded on our behalf by offering up his own life. Jesus still intercedes for us, and this is a very important thing. He still intercedes for us as believers. He's called an advocate, perfecter, and mediator. He's our advocate with the Father, he's the perfecter and author of our faith, and he is the mediator. 1 Timothy 2 5. For there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What do each of the following passages tell us about jesus's intercessory ministry? Romans 8, Hebrews 7, Revelation 1. So you've got those listed out there, and let's all turn to each one together and dwell on each one um, for the remainder of our class. (coughs) Romans 8 is where we'll begin, verses 33 to 35. And we are considering the priestly ministry of Christ. We looked at the prophetic ministry, now the priestly ministry of Christ. Would someone like to read for us Romans 8, 33 to 35. Who's got that for us? Great verses. I can stir the soul. Go ahead. Dory said it first. Okay. So you can do Hebrews 7. Okay.
2: Okay, so Romans... Uh, 833. 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Oh, okay. Now who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword?
0: Alright, so, um, in the previous slide, I listed out the two aspects to Jesus' priestly ministry. The propitiation and the intercession. The intercession, I gave two aspects to His intercession. Past and present. What's the past way that He interceded for us? On the cross. Okay, on the cross in our stead, right? Yeah. And this is the um, substitutionary aspect of propitiation. He intercedes for us on the cross. And then there's an ongoing aspect. And what's the ongoing aspect? He's still dying. How, well, he's not dying on the cross no, again, right? So done. what's he doing? Atoning for our sins. He's, nah, he doesn't have to re-atone for sins.
3: He's interceding for us. He's, he's interceding, his interceding his by body. Body.
0: Okay, what are those titles that I listed? He is called an... Mediator. Mediator? Advocate. Mediator. Okay. Um, he, it's an ongoing aspect. And this is the the uh, present aspect of Jesus' priestly ministry. Okay. The rest is past, and this is present. He continues... To intercede for us. This is Hebrews uh, 7 that we're going to look at in a moment. Um, so, now as we consider Romans 8 that Dory just read for us, how are these two aspects, both the past and the present aspects of Jesus' intercession, found in Romans 8? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Satan. Okay. Christ, Christ Jesus is he who died. Is that past or present? Past. Past. Brother who was raised, again, in the past. Who's at the right hand of God, past or present? Present. Present. And who also intercedes for us, past or present?
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> well, present, he's interceding for us, is the way it's described here. Presently, he's Uh, interceding for us. So when you consider Jesus' priestly ministry, a a lot of times we focus on the past events, that He was a sacrifice. But that's not where it stops, is it? It's because of that that we have the present. Because of Jesus' past work as a priest, we have His present work as a priest, where He's interceding for us at the right hand of God. And so it goes on to ask the question in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And, of course, the answer to that is no one, nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. And why is that? Because of this. Because Jesus is our intercessor. He's our priest. And if Jesus is our priest, we're good forever and ever. We're secure forever and ever. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate you from the love of Christ? No. No. Because Christ is your priest. Okay.
3: We don't don't need a high priest, earthly high priest, to intercede for us anymore. That's right. We don't need someone to step in there, another man, you or whoever, between us and God. We have someone at God's right hand
0: interceding for us constantly. Yes, in perpetuity. And we're going to the book of Hebrews now, and, and in that book, it makes the case. In Israel, there's a high priest year after year with the goats, the scapegoat. It goes year after year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, they, they kill the one, they send the other off to the wilderness, year after year, over and over again, over and over. And the argument in Hebrews is, if the blood of goats and bulls could take away sin, they wouldn't need to keep doing it. But they have to keep doing it because it's a temporary atonement. Then Jesus comes along with his propitiation and it's once for all, right? Amen. It's done. It all sins, past, present, future sins, covered under the blood of Christ. So let's read uh, Hebrews 7 together. Brittany, you got that one? Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. And again, look for the two aspects of the intercession ministry of Christ, past and present. In what ways does this passage highlight Jesus' past work? And in what ways does it highlight Is ongoing work. Hebrews 7,
3: 23-25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them.
0: All right. So the former priests died. (laughs) The former priests um, You know, you'd have Juan in Israel, the the high priest, and he would serve for a while, then he'd die, and another guy would take his place. They were prevented by continuing. But Jesus was not prevented from continuing. Because though Jesus died, he also rose again, didn't he? And he continues forever, it says, and he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. For those who draw near to God through Christ, verse 25, he always lives for this purpose to make intercession for them. An amazing thing. Okay? Does, Thoughts on that. Go ahead.
2: Does he intercede for those who don't?
0: No. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> uh, I mean it's like it's like uh, you know, not necessarily amazing. This is warming my heart, but it's amazing in the sense that it's so exclusive. What Jesus did, when when Jesus came and lived and died and initiated the new covenant through his blood, when Jesus did all these things, he didn't do it so that everybody could have an advocate. He did it so that those who draw near to God through him would have an advocate. And that's the amazing thing of the gospel. That's amazing grace, right? When we experience the work of Christ applied to our souls, not just in the moment we first believe. But in every moment that follows until our death, we're experiencing amazing grace. Mm-hmm. And uh, those who do not draw near to God, those who reject the gospel, they have no advocate with the Father. And that's why when they stand there at the Great White Throne Judgment, they, their name's not found in the Book of Life and they will be cast into the lake of fire because there is no advocate for them. But we who believe have our advocate and just like one of our songs says, we're dressed in His righteousness alone. He's our advocate, he's our mediator, he's brought us to the Father and united us with, with God by faith.
3: Jim? There, there is a teaching out there that Christ died for the world, therefore everybody's saved.
0: Right, and it's that's obviously, universalism. Yeah,
3: that's obviously not what's taught in the gospel.
0: Yes, yep, um, well that's Mormonism too. Um, truly, your neighbors believe his atonement was for the whole world. It puts everybody on the first step of steps to climb to get to heaven, or to get to the highest kingdom. But that first step is still heaven. You are going to be in heaven, whether or not you leave that first step. And we, yeah, we discover in scripture that the propitiate, propitiatory, propitiatory work of Christ, the propitiation of Christ is not applied to every soul, is it?
1: No.
0: Therefore, his intercessory ministry is not applied to every soul because his substitutionary uh, death is tied right with his in- intercession. Okay. Yeah. Which his death, his
3: death was sufficient that it could be applied. Yes. But it has to come through faith.
0: And that's, that's where I am. Mean. And there are some people, because these two are so closely tied, there are some people that say, well, if he only intercedes for some, he only died for some and that his uh, death is sufficient only for the elect. And, and that's a respectable view, I just disagree with it. Um, I, I think it's a logical view. Uh, I used to think it was a heretical view. <laughs> I've evolved in my uh, kindness a little bit there. I, just, I still disagree with it, I'm not convinced by scripture that's the case. Uh, there are too many passages in reference to the broader aspect of Christ's death. Um, I think Romans five is one of them. I think First John two two is one of them. Um, Second Peter, Peter or First Peter two one or Second Peter two one. Um, one of those where it talks about uh, heretics who have entered the church and they deny the master who bought them. Um, that's pretty strong language. So, anyway, I've showed my hand there. But it's, the other view is, is respectable, and there are verses for that, too. That's why Christians disagree on these things is because the Bible, um, on certain topics, um, leaves it up to our own personal understanding through our own personal study, and it is okay. It, it leaves room for us to disagree on those. So we hold them with an open hand. And we, we can be open to evolving in our own understanding. We may say today it's heresy, and... 10 years from now, say, Why did I ever not believe this? So.
2: And at the end of the day, that doesn't change the means by which somebody is saved or their responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that others can be saved. Yes.
3: Yeah. The same, or not the same, but similar, people teach that everybody, we're all the children of God. Yes. The Bible says yes. those who come to God and seek righteousness are children of God.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the Bible talks about what we are by nature, and by nature we are children of yeah. wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. By nature we are not children of God. That's why we have to be adopted. Adopted, okay? Um, let's finish with Revelation 1. Let's all turn there. Revelation 1, and I can read this for us. We might not get through the commentary portion of this, but we can at least read it. Revelation 1.12, 12, then I have to 2 1. So let's look at this together and I'll read for it. <clears throat> Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. And girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength." When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. For the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, how on earth does this make reference to Jesus' priestly ministry? We'll get into this uh, next week, but if you have an, an initial thought, you can share. How is Jesus as priest being reflected in these verses?
2: In verse 18 says that he was once dead, and now he's alive, and he has life within himself. So the propitiatory
0: aspect is there. Yeah. And
2: he's holding these lampstands or these stars in his hands. He's upholding them, um, sustaining them.
0: Yes. In Jesus and the seven lampstands, the churches, there's an aspect there where Jesus is the sustainer. He is the one who is uh, holding them together, carrying them along, providing for them, mediating for them. And we'll detail that next week, okay? Um, and then look at... Jesus' priest also. We'll get into the Aaronic Priesthood and the Melchizedek Priesthood. Do you think those conversations are relevant for around here? (laughs) We'll look at those uh, next week, okay? Someone want to close us in prayer? Volunteer? Oh, hey, go ahead.
3: Well, God, thank you so much for um, giving us your word where we can... uh, Look and see what Christ has done for us and what he is still doing for us. Uh, he is our great High priest, and he does intercede on our behalf, and we thank you so much for that. Uh, I know I need it. I know that we need it. Please bless this day, Father. Please open our hearts and our minds uh, as we worship you and bless the fellowship today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.